Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. One of the things that a pastor often asks about is, are you willing to volunteer? Are you willing to help? Are you willing to serve? And I get as a response so often, well, who am I? You know, how can I do that? Why would I do that? I'm a, I'm a nobody. I'm just a little person. I, I, I don't really have any talents, gifts, or abilities. I've made a mess of my past. I've, I've done something or I've had something done to me. I'm just... I'm a nobody. I'm too little. I don't have the gifts and talents and abilities to do this. And it's easy for us to think that with all the big problems that there are in the world and all the big needs that are out there, that God needs to use superstar Christians, people with lots of money, lots of talent, lots of ability, lots of experience, the big important spiritual gifts. God can use them to make a difference in this world, but he can't use me because I'm just too little. In fact, some of us feel invisible. Nobody hears us, nobody sees us, nobody listens to us. I'm just here and nobody even knows. If I were gone, if I wasn't involved, if I didn't show up at church, if I don't volunteer, nobody will miss me because I'm a nobody. I'm too little. I'm invisible. I'm not important. The story of Mary and Joseph in the Christmas account is a reminder that God uses little people. God uses ordinary people and he does extraordinary things through them because he's an extraordinary God. And it's not that people are little that makes them so important and powerful, it's the fact that God is so big and so good and so right and so powerful, so gracious, that he's able to use people who are so little. And the truth is, is really compared to God and compared to the angels and compared to the great things that are out there in this universe that are so majestic and so jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring, you and I are all little people. All of us are invisible. All of us don't really matter that much. All of us are very, very ordinary. But remember, great things happen when ordinary people yield themselves to God. When we little people surrender to God, God does great things. And I want you to see how he did this in the life of Mary and Joseph. Two very little people, about as low as you could get in the social uh, ladder of that culture, how God was able to do great things to these two little people who are willing to surrender to him. Now, to get Mary and Joseph's story, I've asked Emily and I've asked Dan to read the stories of how they heard about what was going to happen at that first Christmas. One, Dan is going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1. Emily's going to be reading from uh, Luke chapter 1. So I'd like you to listen to the Davises as they, they read the scriptures to us. And Emily's going to start. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to the Son. And he called his name Jesus. Thank you very, very much. This is God's Word. <clears throat> what I just find absolutely remarkable in reading this account of both the angel appearing to Mary and the angel appearing to Joseph in his dream is that both of these, these two people, they were about as low as you could get on the social uh, value and worth ladder, so to speak, you know, of importance, the, the ladder of importance in that culture. I mean, look at Mary. Mary is a, a virgin, so she's unmarried. She doesn't have any value or worth because she's not married. She's a teenager in that culture. She was probably 13 or 14 years of age. She is living in Nazareth, her hometown. Nazareth itself was a very small town. Archaeologists have dug through the ruins and uh, the, the different soil layers in what is today Nazareth, and they've determined that when they reached the layer that they've estimated to be the first century A.D., that Lazarus, Nazareth was a town that was very agriculturally driven. They found a lot of grain bins and olive presses and things like that, and they determined that the size of the town was less than 500 people. So this is a very small place, this little village where they have lived. And when I grew up in Hagerstown, there was a town right out of Hagerstown. Some of you have heard of it before. It was called Funkstown. That was the real name. And Funkstown was a place you drove through real fast when you were going from Hagerstown to somewhere else or you were at somewhere else coming back to Hagerstown. You just went to a blip there, you were over the Antietam Creek and you were done. Just a little place like that. Funkstown was known for having a really good American Legion baseball team back in the day. But anyway, it was a small town. That's Nazareth, a little village, a little spot speck on the map. And that's where Mary has come from. 
It's an agricultural town. It's on the outskirts of a larger city, uh, Sephoris in northern Israel, not even mentioned in the Bible, but a large town. And people could easily see that Mary was a little person. Now, she was engaged, and that would certainly raise her importance and her honor and respect in the culture because now she was married. Now she had the potential of, of you know, having children. Now she could have a prominent husband, possibly, if Joseph ever took off in his career as a, as a contractor, a builder, a car- carpenter. But Mary herself was a very low person. The Bible's quick to say that she's a godly person because the Lord favors her, and she is someone that's chosen by God to serve him. Joseph really isn't much better off than Mary. He's a little older, probably close to 18 years of age, and you think, man, these are kids getting married and you know, having children potentially, how, how young. And that's what our culture tends to say, but that was normal in first century Judaistic culture. And so here's Joseph, this young man, he's trying to get started in a career, probably working with his father in the construction business, and he's hoping to build a home for Mary. Their families have arranged this marriage, they've exchanged money, a bride price has been paid by uh, Mary's mother and father to Joseph as comp- financial compensation for him taking Mary into his home. He's given a dowry also, and so that's been involved. They've exchanged this money. They've got this legally binding contractual arrangement. They are considered married in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of, of the community, because they're engaged. They're betrothed to one another. They have not had their wedding ceremony. They have not consummated physically their relationship, but for all intents and purposes, they are considered legally married. They've exchanged the money, they've had a contractual agreement, and so now they're, they're married. God steps in and he disrupts all of these plans. He disrupts all of this and he sends the angel to Mary and says, I'm going to cause you to give birth to a male child a boy. And not only that, but I'm going to cause this child that's conceived in your womb, he is going to be a great king. He's going to be the son of David. He is going to be the Messiah. He is going to be everything that that the Jewish people have been anticipating and looking for. And it's all going to happen to you, Mary. Well, first off, having an angel appear is rather shocking. And then to be told that you're going to be pregnant without a man helping you, that's pretty darn shocking too. And then to say that this child is going to be the Messiah, the king that everybody's been looking for of all the, the girls in Israel, God has chosen you, why would God choose me? You can imagine why it says that Mary was troubled and perplexed by all of this, by the greeting of the angel, by the words that he's saying. Why, why would she... Why would this be happening to her? It's all so confusing. What's remarkable in this story is that by the time we get to the end of this paragraph, Mary is saying, here I am. I'm I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me exactly as you say. Why was she willing to do that? Why was she willing to surrender as a little person, an insignificant person, an invisible person in that community, in that culture? Why was Mary willing to say, I'm God's female servant? 
let it be to me exactly as you have said. I'm willing to do it. Why would she do that? Partly she was willing to do it because she thought about it. She weighed it all out very carefully. It says that when the angel appeared to her and greeted her, that she was very troubled. And it says also that she was perplexed and she also was trying to discern what sort of greeting this was that the angel gave to her. In verse 29, it says that she was discerning it. That word discern is the idea of adding up things and reaching a calculation. You know, you've, you've tabulated all the, the information and you're evaluating it. You know, in a couple months from now, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but it's going to be tax time again. Yay! Not so, okay? And you're going to be looking at your expenses and you're going to get your W-2 and you're going to do all that and maybe you'll talk to your accountant, maybe you'll do some tax software, maybe you'll just do it the old-fashioned way with an adding machine or calculator and a pen and paper, or pencil and paper, and you'll figure it out and you'll report your earnings and your losses and such and pay your taxes to the government. You go through that sort of an audit, that sort of calculation to come to that conclusion. That's what Mary's doing in her mind as she's listening to this. She is a God-fearing Jewess. She's been brought up to understand and know the Word of God. It's been taught in her home. She's obeying the Lord. She is worshiping the Lord. And she's doing all of this. And she knows that she's very low. She knows that she's a virgin. She knows that she's scheduled to be married to this man, Joseph. She knows her parents have arranged it. And she knows all this. And she knows that there's an angel standing there in front of her now. And she knows that I don't get how in the world this is at all going to happen. But she's thoughtfully interacting with all of that. But she doesn't have enough information yet to make a decision as to what to do with what the angel is saying. And so she asks a very, very important question in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Duh. <laughs> That's the question everybody should be asking here is how in the heck can this happen? I mean, seventh grade biology class tells you that you can't get pregnant without a man being on the scene somehow. How is this going to happen? And so the angel explains to her how it's going to come about. And his answer is, is that God is going to miraculously do it through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to back up, though, to Mary's question. Because that question, you could easily say, Mary sounds so skeptical there, doubtful. And I thought we're not supposed to doubt and we're not supposed to be skeptical when it comes to God's plan and his revelation and his will. But the truth is there's a good kind of doubting and there's a bad kind of doubting. There's a good kind of asking questions and a bad kind of skeptical types of questions. There's an example of both of them in the, in the Christmas stories, okay? So there's this guy at the temple and he's offering prayers to God, burning incense, leading the Jewish people in prayer. His name is Zacharias and an angel appears to him and says, you're gonna have a son and his name is John and he's gonna be the prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah begins doubting and he begins asking questions. He says, this is impossible. My wife is barren and we're both old people. It doesn't work like that. It's too late. Forget it. The angel says, well, look, don't doubt like that. And just to kind of prove my point, Zechariah, you're not going to be able to talk for the next six, nine months. You won't be able to say a word until your son is born. 
And that's exactly what happened. Zechariah comes stumbling out of the temple and he's wide-eyed, his mouth is agape, and he's like, I can't say a thing. And he's making these gestures and try to sign and it looks like a big charades party and things like that. And he's not getting the message across at all until people figure out what he's signing, that he saw an angel and this was happening. And he goes home and sure enough, Elizabeth, his barren elderly wife, gets pregnant. And when the baby is born nine months later, she says, you name him John. And nobody in there at the, the day that uh, the little baby is being circumcised, nobody, nobody wants to name him that because they say, there's nobody in your family named John. And they give Zacharias a tablet and he writes it out. His name is John. And immediately he can start talking. That was a skeptical kind of doubt, the kind of doubt where you don't really want the answer. You're not really looking for the truth because your mind is already made up. This can't happen. This is impossible. Mary is expressing doubt. It's a healthy kind of doubt. It's a, I need a little bit more information kind of a doubt, a kind of skepticism. She says, how can this be? I'm not married. I don't have a husband. I don't sleep. I don't sleep with a man. I'm a virgin. How in the world is this going to take place if I don't have a man involved and Joseph and I are not married yet? It's not time. How will it take place? God doesn't look down on her doubt in that moment because she's just gathering more information. All I want you to see, just in by emphasizing this, is that Mary surrenders to God. She's not just jumping off a cliff blindly. It's not just a blind leap of faith that she's making here. She's getting information. Why are you saying this? What are you hoping to do? How is it going to come about? I don't understand this. And when the angel explains that this child is going to be the Messiah and he's going to be generated inside of her by means of the working of God's powerful holy presence, the Holy Spirit, Mary is willing to even accept that this is going to happen. The angel even appeals to her and says, look, you know that this is possible because it's already happened in a different situation with slightly different circumstances. Your relative Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, she's expecting a child and she's six months along. Nothing, it says in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Every word that God says comes true. Every promise God makes is fulfilled. That's what he's saying. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary, nothing's impossible for God to do this in you. The promise that he's made will come true. He will make it come about because God's powerful presence will come upon you and make it happen. After gathering this information and thinking about it, what does Mary do? She just simply says, here I am. I am the Lord's female slave. Let it be to me exactly as you say. I yield and surrender to you. God does great things through little people when they surrender to Him. But God is not asking you to check your brains at the door and just say, yep, 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 whatever you say, God, that's fine. Ask questions. Think about it. Look at it. But not with a pessimistic, skeptical, it's impossible kind of doubt. But with God, are you really saying this? Do I really understand this? Are you really going to do this? I'm trusting you. And I'm asking you to bring this about. 
Mary was willing to believe God and trust God, and because of that, she was willing to surrender to God and yield to Him. Now, Joseph had to do the same thing. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, and you can see there that, that Joseph, his circumstances are a little different, of course. An angel appears to him, but it's while he's sleeping in a dream. And Joseph has already got this big dilemma. His big issue is not how is this going to come about, but what do I do about this mess? Because here he is, he's planning to get married to Mary, and there's been this interruption. He's found out one way or another that she's pregnant. Maybe she's come back from Elizabeth, visiting Elizabeth, and he's obviously seeing that baby bump and wondering, Mary, you got some splaining to do here because I don't get what's going on. I'm not the dad. Did you have a boyfriend back where Zacharias and Elizabeth live? Were you assaulted? What happened? I'm not the dad. Either way, He's upset, and he has every right to be because he is a good, godly Jewish man, and she has broken that contractual engagement, the betrothal that they have. Something has occurred. Something has interrupted this, and their dreams are just flown out the window. Their marriage is just flown out the window. You could say, well, wait a minute. Couldn't Joseph just accept it and you know, forgive and just let it go and marry her anyway? And the answer is no. In that culture, that was an impossibility. He had to let it go. He had to let her go, excuse me. He had to let her go. He had to divorce her. He couldn't just you know, give the ring back. It was a, a contractual obligation that had to be broken. And, and Joseph, as he's thinking about all this, he's pondering what to do. He's considering whether or not how. He, he's decided, I'm going to divorce Mary, but how am I going to do it? Am I going to do it publicly or am I going to do it privately? And he's weighing all this out. And see, Joseph's options are this. He knows that he's not the father. He knows that somehow Mary has become pregnant and somehow he's not, you know, again, he's not the dad. So he has every right to break off the engagement. He can start all over. He can find another girl, get married to her. And and the thing is, is that if he breaks off the engagement and he does it in a public way, he's entitled to get the money that he gave to Mary's family, he can get that back and, and he can keep the dowry. And, and he can just hold on to that and he can become, become wealthy, you know, richer than he was in that process. And he can start all over with a new girl, a new wife. And Mary's shame stays on her and her shame of her infidelity doesn't come upon him because that would stain him. You have to remember that culture was very driven by honor and shame. And, you know, the more respectable and honorable you were, the better you were. But the more shamed you were, the more humiliated you were, the worse you were. And it was a public thing. And there were all these little checks and balances as to, you know, marks for you or against you. Were you liked and approved and honored and respected by others or were you ashamed? And what's happened to Mary has brought great shame upon her because she is pregnant and she is unmarried. Now, if some people say, you know, well, well, you know, the Bible in the book of uh, Deuteronomy says that when a woman commits adultery, she should be stoned to death. So is Mary's life in danger? 
And I'm sure that that was a possibility, but not likely. In the first century Jewish culture, they didn't stone people to death for adultery. The Romans didn't do that either. So even though adultery was considered a capital offense, it was not something that they would execute people for. And I don't know why, maybe it just happened too often. But either way, they didn't do it. So it's not likely that Mary would have been killed. But boy, she would have been shamed. And she would be shamed to such a degree that she probably would have wished she was dead. I would have. Because what they would do, if it's a public humiliation, and that's what Joseph's pondering, to shame her, divorce her publicly and bring shame to her, they would take the woman who was an adulteress and they would bring her to a, a, a public place, a very prominent place where everybody could see her, and they would take all the jewelry off of her, and they would take off her head covering, and they would let down her hair, and they would even grab the front of her robe and they would rip it down and expose a breast, and they would do that while everybody is laughing and jeering and mocking her and yelling at her and cursing her and yelling at her I know honestly I have not seen in the historical record what happened to the men a couple of you gals are looking like this and I don't blame you because it's awful it's horrific but again in a very patriarchal culture that's what Mary was likely to encounter if Joseph would publicly divorce her but it says he wasn't going to do that. He was going to put her away, divorce her privately. So the finances would stay the way they were. There wouldn't be any kind of a public shaming, but there would be this whispering. There would be this talking. There would be this gossip that would just permeate the rest of their lives in Nazareth. The, 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 the talking about what had happened. And if Joseph chooses to marry Mary, and even if he divorces her privately, you know, it's the only thing that he can do to save, that, save himself from that shame. While he's considering all this, it says that an angel appeared to him in a dream. And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful to you. No other man has been with her. This is something that Mary, rather than being unfaithful, she has been faithful. Rather than being immoral, she's been obedient to God. And it's God's spirit that's come upon her. It's God's Spirit who has made this pregnancy come about. The child that is in her is by the Holy Spirit. And I'm letting you know, Joseph, the angel says, she is going to give birth to a son and you have the responsibility to name him Jesus. So don't be afraid to marry her. Don't be afraid of the shame. Don't be afraid of the humiliation. The Lord is with her. The Lord will be with you. Take this baby boy and make him your son. Give him the name that I give you. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And actually, the angel gives something Joseph that he doesn't give something to Joseph that he doesn't give to Mary. Mary knows the baby's name is to be Jesus, but Joseph now knows why. Because he is going to be the Savior. Remember, the name Jesus means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. Yahweh comes to the rescue. 
And often that name was used, it's like the name Joshua, it was used to try to get across the idea that a great deliverer, the mighty king is gonna throw off our oppressors and set his people free. And he's saying that's not the deliverance he's talking about. He's talking about rescuing people from a greater tyrant, a worse tyrant, the tyranny of sin, the bondage of sin and death and Satan. This baby boy of Mary's has the ability to set God's people free from that worst of all enemies. Matthew makes an interesting observation listening to this encounter of the angel with Joseph and explaining the virgin birth, actually the virgin conception of Jesus in this way. Matthew observes all this took place to fulfill what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph, this isn't anything new. This is anything terribly shocking. God promised this 700 years earlier. Haven't you heard about this? The people who are listening to this and believing, I can't see how this came about. Don't you understand that this is what God promised would happen? That God would come and would be born of a virgin? And we're going to nickname this child Emmanuel because he is God with us. Exactly what we've been looking for. Notice what Joseph does. And this is where we see that he does the same thing as Mary in the sense of that he surrenders to God's will. Because it says in verse 24, when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did, that little tiny word there, he did what the angel said, what the angel commanded him. And he took his wife but knew her not, they had no sexual relations, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and swallow my pride, and I'm going to take Mary, this woman everybody is gossiping about and accusing her of infidelity, and even though I don't understand all this, God has told me enough, and I'm going to make her my wife, and we're going to keep going what we were doing. We're going to get married, we're going to set up a home, and we're going to bring this little boy into the world, and I'm going to make him my son. I'm going to give him the name that God has given me to give him. I'm going to call him Jesus. And I'm sure Joseph thought about that over and over as he and Mary talked about it. This baby is somehow going to rescue us from our sins. Imagine that, that he would save us. That's a consolation for all the shame that they're going to endure. When you choose as a little person to surrender to God, when you choose to surrender to him, there will always come suffering. And we've talked about that. Mary saying, yes, I'm the Lord's slave. Let it be to me exactly as you say. As she agrees to that and surrenders to that, she knows that shame is going to come. She'd probably heard stories about other people who had been caught in adultery and what was going on. And she was old enough to understand the ways of the world and the birds and the bees and all of that. She knew what was going to happen, that people would talk about her. Can you imagine her trying to explain what the angel said to her parents, to her father. Can you imagine what she's trying to say to her sisters or other relatives? Can you imagine her trying to explain it to her friends? Can you imagine her trying to explain it to Joseph? Joseph, it doesn't, it's not the way it looks. I didn't do anything wrong. Mary, how could it be otherwise? Can you see the suffering that Mary would go through? 
And on top of all that, Joseph, he takes that suffering and says, I'll make it mine too. I've done nothing wrong. No one can accuse me of anything wrong. In fact, if anything, they'll accuse me of being the father because I'm the one who's saying, yes, I want her to be my, my wife and this baby is ours. So he's heaping shame he has no business taking upon himself. They have to go to Bethlehem. The baby is born. You can just imagine all that time that they spent the early months of, his, of Mary's pregnancy in Nazareth at her home, near her mother, near Joseph's family. You can just imagine everybody, every time they were out on the street, people would look the other way. People would whisper behind their back. They'd show up at the synagogue and there would be talking and people would stop talking as soon as they walked in. Can you just imagine that, that being ostracized in that way? And knowing that when your son is born, you're going to bring him into the world and people are going to call him a bastard, an illegitimate child. And I know that's a shocking, crude word. And I know some of you are saying, why'd you have to say that, pastor? And I, I'm sorry that I did, but not really. Because the shock you feel and the shame you feel and the embarrassment that you and I feel saying that word and saying it about the Son of God, our Savior, is exactly the kind of shame that I'm talking about. The shame that's talked about in this passage. The weight and embarrassment of it. Ooh, to be called that. But that's what we're talking about here. The shame that was involved. The humiliation that was involved. They go to Bethlehem. They give birth to the baby. And boy, the shepherds come and the wise men come. And all these great things are happening until Herod gets wind of it, the king in, in Jerusalem. And he wants to kill the baby. I can't help but think that Mary and Joseph's lives were in danger too. And so what do they do? They have to flee to Egypt. They live in a foreign country for years until Herod dies. And then they come back. And all the things that they go through to raise this child and keep him safe and provide for him, knowing the weight of responsibility is on their shoulders. Mary had even been told by another prophet your sorrow is going to pierce your heart. Your sorrow for this child. Yes, what a great privilege. But the sorrow of bringing the Messiah into the world. Knowing that to save people from their sins, he has to die in the process. Mary was willing to take all that suffering. Joseph was willing to take all that suffering. Because they love God. They trusted him. They feared him. They obeyed him. You and I need to understand that if we surrender to God, there will be suffering. You might be thinking, well, I don't think God's going to use me like Mary and Joseph because I doubt that he's going to send an angel to tell me his will. And I will say that's probably true. But he's done one thing better. He's given you this book where he's revealed his will. And he shows you his plan for his, your life and how he's able to help you and, and resource you and empower you to do the work that he calls you to do. So as you and I engage the scriptures, we begin to learn the will of God. We learn the word of God to know the will of God. And when we know and understand the will of God, then we can go out and do the work of God, the things that God calls us to do. And so we have the scriptures. In some ways, we're better off than Mary and Joseph, even if we don't see angels telling us the will of God because we have the inspired scriptures 
We have the Holy Spirit living inside of our hearts, empowering us and guiding us and directing us if you're a child of God. We have the church to give us the encouragement and support that we're not doing this alone, obeying the will of God by ourselves. And above all of that, we have the finished work of Christ who died to rescue us from our sins, to set us free, to give us hope, to make us the family of God. We have the finished work of Christ. And Mary and Joseph were looking forward to all of that. And we look back and see that it's already been done for us. So as you and I engage the scriptures and we learn the will of God for our lives and grow in our understanding so we can go out and do his work, then we need to go out and do it. We need to submit and surrender to the will of God. Here I am, Lord, I'm your slave. Here I am, I'm going to obey you. Here I am, I'm going to do what you ask me to do. And often there are all these things that pull against that. Our own fleshly nature, you know, we're selfish. I am, I'll, I'll claim that I am, maybe you're not, but probably and I'm ignorant, and I don't really understand stuff. And there are these hurts in the past, and all these choices that I've made, and it, all that stuff makes obeying God hard. But if I surrender to his will, he will strengthen me even when there's suffering. Surrender brings suffering. But I can push through that suffering, and I can endure it. Because like the angel said to Mary, the Lord is with you. Matthew reminds Joseph and reminds you and me that Emmanuel has come. God is with us. And we don't have to endure the suffering that comes from our submission to God. We don't have to endure it by ourselves. We have Him. You see, when we submit to God... When little people submit to God, great things happen. Well, what are the great things? God does great things. He's the extraordinary God who does great things. And so Mary and Joseph submit to God. They endure that shame. They go through that suffering. They take it and they say, we'll do it because we want to submit to God. Our God is so great. He's so good. He's so gracious and we love him. We'll do his will. And God brings about the salvation. He sends the child who will save his people from their sins, Jesus. And when you and I choose to submit to God and when we go through that suffering with his help and by his grace, God brings about a salvation. He brings about good blessings and good guidance and good direction and you know, his help to other people and to ourselves. God works his will and brings about his glory and his kingdom. He does that. It's not Mary and Joseph that save people. It's that God saved them and he used them. Some people lift up Mary and they honor her, they venerate her, they worship her, they call her a co-redemptrix. You know, she was involved in bringing about our salvation. She was involved in bringing about our salvation only in the sense of that she was willing to let God use her. And you can do that and I must do that as well. I'm willing to be used of God. I hope you are too. But that doesn't make us an equal to God. It doesn't make us part of the Trinity. It doesn't make us a co-redemptrix. Mary needed a savior. She was a sinner. Later on in chapter one of Luke's gospel, she's gonna say, I, I worship God my savior. She needed God's grace. She couldn't give God's grace. And yet Mary is a bold, vibrant example of someone who surrendered 
to the will of God and endured the suffering of obedience and faith and saw the salvation at the end of all of it. Her son dying on the cross and rising from the dead, ascending into glory. Mary saw all that. She surrendered and suffered to see the salvation that God would bring about. The reason why Mary and Joseph could do this, the reason why you and I can do it, and we said just briefly, God's with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. We're not alone. But think about what it takes for that to happen. You know, we talked earlier that here's Mary. She's a teenage girl. She's unmarried. She's a woman. She lives in Nazareth. And all these strikes are against her. She's a very humble invisible, unimportant person. She doesn't have a lot of status. She doesn't have a lot of value. She has no power. She's practically invisible. And then she becomes pregnant out of wedlock. (laughs) And the bottom drops out. She has to go even lower. Now she's a slut in the eyes of other people. She's way down here. Her husband wants to divorce her. Way down even further. And yet Jesus, when he left the glory of heaven, laying aside his rights, he came to earth and he was born as a human being, as an infant in a barn, helpless. And he took upon him human flesh and he became like a servant and he was condemned as a criminal. And he not only was condemned as a criminal, but it says in Philippians chapter 2, he suffered the death on the cross, the worst, most shameful kind of death and execution a person could endure. Jesus Christ went even lower than what he was asking Mary and Joseph for all their shame to endure. He was despised. He was scorned. He was mocked. He was condemned. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. They spit in his face. They ripped out his beard. They mocked him with a crown of thorns. And then they nailed his hands and feet to a cross. And he died for us. You say, I can't serve God because I have to give up my rights. I have to give up my my pride. I have to give up that. I mean, think about what Mary and Joseph lost, the losses that they suffered. You know, they they gave up their rights, you know, to the dream marriage. They gave up their dreams. They gave up their honor. They surrendered all of that because they had a God who had given up all that stuff and even more to save them. Everything that God asks you to give up, every suffering that God asks you to endure in order to submit to His will and have Him work through you, He has done that and even more. He has given up and even more for you. Why? So He could be with you. So you would never have to suffer these things and surrender these things by yourself. He did it for you that you might surrender to Him. A lot of us 
want other people to know what we want for Christmas. But do you know what God wants for Christmas? He doesn't need anything. How do you give the God who has everything? What do you give him? There's one thing he doesn't have. One thing. Your heart and my heart. He won't seize it, grab it, take it. He can do that to everything else in this universe. Force it to be his because it is his. And your heart and your life does already belong to him. But are you willing to humbly give it and surrender to him? There will be suffering, but he will be with you because he's gone even lower than you to submit to the will of God for your salvation and mine. God does great things when little people surrender to him. I hope you'll see that as you surrender to his will yourself. I'd like to pray with you and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. Oh Lord, I pray that we would never forget that everything you ask us to do, you've already done. You went even lower than you call us to go in humbly serving others and humbly submitting to your will. And I give thanks to you, we give thanks to you that at this Christmas, we can give you what you desire more than anything else. We can surrender ourselves, our lives to you. I'm asking you, Lord, please, that you would help us to bring glory and honor to your name through the joyful, willing, loving, faith-filled surrender to your will. Lord, thank you for telling us that there'll be suffering. But thank you also for assuring us that we do not suffer alone. We do not bear that shame, that pain, that loss alone that you are there. Thank you that you'll bring about your salvation and bring glory to your name as you work through our surrender to you. Help us yield our hearts, our wills, our lives to you each day. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.